Welcome to Salt and Light with Pastor Rodney Finch. Salt and Light is a radio outreach ministry of Calvary Chapel, Cary. Jesus, speak to me. Open your word and reveal your heart to me. Salt and Light is a series of verse-by-verse studies through the Bible, focusing on its practical application to our everyday lives. Salt and Light is recorded live at Calvary Chapel, Cary, in Apex, North Carolina. Stay tuned. At the end of the program, we will give you information on how to contact us, so be sure to have a pen and paper ready. Today, Pastor Rodney will be teaching from the book of Romans, chapter 9. So grab your Bibles and follow along. Now with today's teaching, here's Pastor Rodney. Although they deserved judgment, God showed them mercy and God was teaching them right up front that this whole grace thing and this whole election thing is not about the one who wills or the one who runs, but it has everything to do with the sovereignty of God. It has nothing to do with you. The Jewish people are not God's chosen people because they were wonderful people. Remember last week we pointed out that Abraham, Father Abraham, was an idol-worshiping Gentile when God called them to separate a people unto himself. So verse 16 in our Bibles, go ahead and look at it again. It says, so here's the point, it's not about works. God's election has nothing to do with works. It's not of him who wills, nor of him who runs, nor of him who sweats. Or works, but is of God who shows mercy. You see that? Let's pick up, move forward, talking about mercy, sovereign mercy. On the other side of God's sovereign mercy, listen, he's a sovereign judge. Look at verse 17. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I may show my power in you, and that my name may be declared in all the earth. Therefore, he has mercy on whom he wills, and on whom he wills, he hardens. Well, you say to me, why does he still find fault? For who has resisted his will? But indeed, O man, who are you to reply against God? Underline that in your neighbor's Bible. (laughs) Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Does the potter have power over the clay from the same lump to make one vessel for honor and another for dishonor? Or what if God, wanting to show his wrath and to make his power known, endured with much suffering the vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, and that he might make known the riches of his glory on the vessels of mercy, which he did, which he had prepared beforehand for glory, even us whom he called, not of the Jews only, But he also called the Gentiles. Stop right there, saints. Give me your attention. So Paul says to Israel, God sovereignly elected you and showed mercy to you and gave gifts to you. We talked about last week. And God pardoned you. But at the same time, listen, that God pardoned them. He punished Pharaoh. Verse 17 in your Bibles lets us know that God says, I'm going to show how powerful I am. I'm going to raise Pharaoh up and put him down that all the earth throughout history will know of God's power. Again, saints, listen, give me your attention. 
I draw your attention to Exodus chapter 7. As God sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell him, remember God sent Moses to Pharaoh to tell him what, saints? Let my people go. Remember that? And the Bible says that Pharaoh hardened his heart. Now listen close. Turn on your brain. Very important. In the Hebrew language, there are three different Hebrew words when it talks about that Pharaoh hardened his heart or the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Three different Hebrew words. One of them means to simply harden. The second one means to make heavy, not budging. The last one means to make firm or stiff, which is what you do to yourself. You want to notice the progression from hard to heavy to stiff. Now, this word harden is used 20 times in the book of Exodus as it relates to Pharaoh. Interesting enough, listen, 10 times it says Pharaoh hardened his heart. And 10 times it says God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Listen, when it says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, this is very important for you to understand. When the Bible says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that would be the Hebrew word that implies that his heart was made firm, his heart was made stiffened, and it was something that Pharaoh did to himself. And God allowed Pharaoh to take the position that he had already chosen. By the time that the Bible tells us that Pharaoh hardened his own heart, he had many times to repent up until that point. God was doing everything he could because God is always doing everything he can to reach people with his mercy and grace. And God was doing everything he could. Pharaoh, let my people go. No. Well, then here comes the frogs. And you would think that Pharaoh would buy a clue. If there's frogs coming out of your bed, you open the microwave and frogs are popping out. You would think, wow, this must be God. I better repent. Or all the water in Egypt turns to blood. And when the Bible says all the water, listen, all the water, even in the pitchers that they were drinking water out of, turned to blood. So there's a pitcher of water on the nightstand. What is whatever? And, and, and you take it and you pour some water to get yourself a drink and blood comes out. You would think that Pharaoh would say, you know what? I think I'll repent. But he didn't. And because he didn't buy a clue and realize, understand, he had saw the miracles of, of God and he had heard the word of God. And he had every opportunity to repent. And after you continue to listen, listen, after you continue to harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart and harden your heart, after seeing the miracles of God and seeing the blessings of God and see and hearing the word of God, and you continue to harden your heart, then God will allow you to take the position that you have already chosen. God's not the big ogre in the sky making people harden their hearts so he can be evil to them. He can be the big bad meanie. God wants to show mercy, but people refuse. And doesn't this sound just like Romans chapter one? As the people continue to profess themselves to be wise, they became fools. 
And their hearts became hard and they rebelled against God and they continued to rebel against God till the book of Romans tells us that God turned them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are unseemly. Don't you understand? You cannot continue to harden your heart as God continues to not. Hey, repent. I want to save you. I want to do a work. Hey, I'm trying to get to you. Yeah, God, I got places to go, people to see, things to do. I'm not home, God. I'm too young. Don't you understand? The more you harden your heart against God, the easier it becomes the next time. And God allowed Pharaoh's heart to be hardened because that was the position. Because God is a gentleman. And if that's the position that you want to take, that's the position that God will allow you to take. So God hardened Pharaoh's heart. God raised him up, the Bible says, to put him down. But God also knew that Pharaoh's desire was to be hard against God. So then in verse 19, I got to move forward. Then look at it in verse 19. Then somebody, someone might say, then why does God still find fault? Who can resist his will? So some will say, listen, Rodney, if he chooses some and rejects others, if God just kills the guys that he doesn't like and saves the ones that he does, then what's the point? Who can have a chance? And I love Paul's response. Did you see it? Paul's response right there in verse 20. You're looking at it. Paul says, who are you to reply against God? Or in the Greek language, who do you think you are? Don't you just love that? Now, listen, this is a very important question. Listen, Bible students, this is a very important question. If you're going to go on with the argument, who are you to reply against God or who are you to argue with God? You know, it makes me think of Job chapter 38 as God listened to Job. You ought to read that in your quiet time. Job 38. As God listened to Job argue for some time. And then God finally said, Job, come here. Job, come here. I'm going to talk and you are going to listen. And God went on to say to Job, God said, Job, where were you when I put the stars in place? Job, God said, when is the last time you told the day to start with morning? Job, where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? Job, where were you, God said, when I hung the planets? Job, God said, tell me about the measures of rain and hail. Job, tell me how I set the boundaries of the sea. You've been to the ocean? Do you know when those waters come in off that ocean and they only come so far? Don't you know that that's God saying, that's enough? Except from time to time when it just washes the really nice houses. But other than that, <laughs> and if you have one, let me stay in it. No problem there. But it's God who's, who tells the ocean to stop. He says, Job, tell me about the gates of hell. And God goes on and on and on, basically saying to Job, listen, saints, watch this. He says to Job, Job, who are you to argue with me? Now, let me help you with your theology as it relates to this whole doctrine of election and predestination thing. Let me help you with something, because this is very, very important as you struggle with it. Here's a part of election and predestination. Here's a part of it. God is God. And you ain't. 
Wasn't that deep? That was heavy. God, see, you know, we can't get our minds around how does God elect one and not another, raise up Pharaoh, put him down, chooses one, not another. Listen, a part of this election thing has everything to do with God is God and we are not him. He is God. He is sovereign. He's not running for office. He's not taking applications because he's not resigning. Somebody say amen. Amen. He's still being God. And because he's sovereign, he does whatever he pleases. This is biblical reality. God says, my ways are higher than your ways. My thoughts are higher than your thoughts. You can't know everything about God. Well, I don't get this election thing, so I don't want to be saved. Listen, that's crazy. Well, I don't get this predestination thing, so I don't want anything to do with God. Listen, that's stupid. Because if you're waiting to understand everything about God before you become a Christian, you'll never become a Christian. You'll never give your life to Christ because God says my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. So Paul goes on to say in verse 20, go ahead and look at it in your Bibles. Man, who do you think you are to argue against God? Will the thing formed, are you looking at it? Say amen if you're looking at it. Will the thing formed say to him who formed it, why have you made me like this? Doesn't a potter have the right to make anything he chooses out of clay? If the potter wants to, can he make a vessel of honor or another for dishonor? You know, it would be like, you know, some of you guys, maybe you made something in your potter or whatever. But it'd be like a piece of clay or a lump of clay looking up at its maker and saying, you know, why are you squeezing me this way? Why are you holding me this way? Why are you wetting me and drying me and pushing me and smacking me and kneading me? I mean, can you imagine a lump of clay saying, you know what? I can't believe you did this to me. I wanted to be a Ming vase and you made me a spittoon. (laughs) I wanted to be a beautiful vase on the dining room table and you made me an ashtray. That's ridiculous. How much more ridiculous is it for us who are clay to argue with God about his choices? That'd be like my kids, <laughs> my, like my kids arguing with me. Well, I don't like what you did. I'd be, and you want me to what? <laughs> you know. You know, I, t- I just had a flashback, y'all. I just, <laughs> woo! <laughs> it's like, whoa. We're in no position to argue with God. You understand? Say amen. We're in no position. God is God and we are not him. And we're in no position to argue with God. Well, notice in verse 25, I got to move on if I expect to finish up. Look at verse 25. And he says also to Hosea, Bible students, Hosea chapter 1 and 2. He says also in Hosea, I will call them my people who are not my people. And her beloved who was not my beloved. And it shall come to pass in the place, Paul reaches back to the Old Testament now, he pulls from Hosea, and it shall come to pass in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they shall be called sons of the living God, Gentiles. 
Also, he chooses Isaiah chapter 10, verse 22 and 23. Isaiah also cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of the children be as the sand of the sea, the remnant will be saved. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because the Lord will make a short work upon the earth. And as Isaiah says again, you see, Paul uses the Old Testament to make his point. Biblically and in context. As Isaiah said before, Isaiah chapter 11, verse 9, he's quoting, Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a seed, we would have become like Sodom and we would have been like Gomorrah. So Paul, again, saints, give me your attention, is quoting two books from the Old Testament to show that God will take those who are not his people and make them his people. It's an act of sovereign grace and choice on God's behalf as he chose Israel and God's grace that chose the church. Now look at verse 30. What shall we say then that Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have obtained righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel pursuing the law of righteousness has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not do what saints seek it by faith. But as it were, they sought righteousness by the works of the what law for they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. Saints, stop right there before you close your Bibles. Listen. There are two, three, pardon me, categories of people. Listen, really quickly, Lord help. There are three categories of people from God's perspective on the earth. There are Jews, there are Gentiles, and then there's the church. The church is made up of Jew and Gentiles. The church is made up of Jews and Gentiles that make one new people. That's why when I hear from time to time, I have heard perhaps a Jewish person say, I am a Jewish Christian. I understand what you mean when you say I am a Jewish Christian. I understand what you mean. You mean that you are Jewish and that you have become a Christian and you call yourself a Jewish Christian. But listen, that's right. And then again, it's not right. It's right. And it isn't right because yes, you are Jewish, Jewish. And yes, you are a Christian. But the reality is when you give your life to Christ, you become a Christian. You are in a whole new race. You know, it'd be almost like me saying to you, I am a black Christian. Amen. <laughs> Y'all are quiet. It's true. I am black and I am a Christian. But I do not go around telling people I am a black Christian. I tell people I am a Christian. If you're Irish, you don't say I'm an Irish Christian. You say I am a Christian, because when you're a Christian, it's one new race of people. That's why I love this church, because I'm looking at one new race of people. I don't see multicolors. I see one new race. We're just Christians, man. We're Christians. 
So Paul then, he wraps it up in verse 30. Now he says, what shall we say? Or how do we sum it up? The sum of this is the conclusion of the matter is that Paul says the whole of chapter 9, it's not because of our goodness, it's not because of our birthright, it's not because of our bloodline, it's not because of how much we work or how much we do to amass God's goodness and God's graciousness. It's who we believe in. It's not what you do, it's who you believe in. And the Jews were trusting in their works. Paul says, no, put your faith in Jesus Christ, not in the works of the law. You see, even today, we've been to Israel many times. Perhaps you'll go with us one of these times. But even today, listen, the Jews are still trusting in their works. If you ask a Jewish person who does not know Jesus, some call themselves completed Jews. Fulfilled Jews, that's another term. But if you ask them today, you say, how are you going to get to heaven? They will tell you we are trusting in our good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds. And listen, I'm going to tell you a little secret because you came in second service. That's why they're on like this mad dash to get the temple built. Because the truth be told, every Jew knows, wait a minute, you can't really trust in your good deeds to outweigh your bad deeds. Because when they say that to me, I say, well, now, wait a minute. Hold on. What about the what are you using? What are you doing for this whole sacrificial thing? You know, that whole thing that God established way back there in the Old Testament about the high priest taking the blood and putting it on the bull's head and the goat running into the wilderness. And all the people gather and say, be gone, be gone, be gone. And that means your sin is gone on the head of the goat. And then he sprinkles the blood on the day of Yom Kippur on the, you know, on the blood sacrifice that forgives and cleanses you of your sins. I mean, Mr. Jew, what are you doing about that? Well, we're trusting in our good deeds to outweigh our bad deeds. But listen, that's why they want that temple to be built. And that is why they are already, as we speak even now, preparing to have that temple rebuilt. They got all the stones for the high priest's breastplate. Come on Wednesday night, the high priest's breastplate sanctified and all the the lovers and the hands and the spoons and the red heifer is being raised because they're trying to get back to that sacrificial system. Because they even know within themselves, listen, it's not about the works. The reality is that we have to put our faith in Jesus Christ. And to the Jew, when you say to the Jew, listen, I know I'm out of time. Give me a second. When you say to the Jew that all you have to do is put your faith in Jesus and believe in the Messiah, that he came and, you know, he was a Messiah. They struggle. They stumble at that. They stumble at that. Jesus, I mean, Jesus, he was like a commoner. He hung out with common people. He hung out with prostitutes and sinners. Alcoholics. Tax collectors. Who in the world? What kind of Messiah would hang out with a tax collector? Messiah? He didn't look like a Messiah. What's a Messiah look like? I don't know, but he didn't look it. He looked more like a servant. They stumble at that. And I submit to you this morning, listen, there are many, many people here right now that stumble at Jesus. You mean to tell me I don't have to do anything? I just have to believe. Oh, wait a minute. Hold it. I can't handle that. I need to sweat. I need to do something. 
He's a stumbling stone. The Bible tells us, look at verse 33. Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. And so I ask you, what? What? Jesus is equated to two types of stones in the Bible. Number one, a stumbling stone. Number two, a chief cornerstone. I ask you, what stone is he to you? Is he a stumbling stone? A stumbling stone says, I'm putting my trust in my works. A stumbling stone says, you know what? I'll do good. I'll knock on as many doors as I can. I'll ride bikes throughout the neighborhoods. I'll witness in the parking lot at Walmart. It happened to me the other day. Would you like to go to heaven? Paradise? What I do to get to heaven For you, Christ is a stumbling stone because you won't trust in his works. Or a chief cornerstone builder, architect, you know. The chief cornerstone on every building does what? Holds the whole thing together. It holds it up. And for me, Jesus is a chief cornerstone. He's holding me up. Everything I do, all that I am, all that I will ever be is resting on who he is. You got to ask yourself that question. Fathers here on Father's Day, you ask yourself, what is he to you? Mothers, what is he to you? Is he a stumbling stone? You trust in your own good works? Well, I tithe. I do this. Listen, you can tithe and still not make it in heaven. Something more than five people need to say amen. You can tithe and not make it in heaven. You can come to church every time the door is open and not make it in heaven. Who are you trusting in? And this is what Paul's getting to in chapter 9. Election and sovereignty is not based on what you do. It's based on his sovereign choice. Jesus comes along and says, whosoever will, let them come. You have been listening to Salt and Light, a radio outreach ministry of Pastor Rodney Finch in Calvary Chapel, Cary, located in Apex, North Carolina. Join Pastor Rodney Monday through Friday at this same time. For information regarding service times, you can contact us at 1-800-293-0923. That's 1-800-293-0923. You may listen to today's broadcast in its entirety by visiting the Media Library on our website at cccarry.org. We would like to thank you for tuning in to Salt and Light and pray that you have been blessed. Until next time, may you be salt and light. Let me be a salt.